Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. But before we get into the podcast, a word from the sponsors of this episode, Chargebee. Chargebee is the leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS and subscription startups, such as Hopin, Spendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is particularly powerful for European startups to navigate complex issues such as tax compliances, invoicing, and billing regulations. The product also enables you to experiment with different pricing models and also to localize the pricing and checkout experiences. So check them out at chargebee.com. And now let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Ali Albazaz, a founder of Inkit, a data-powered platform for discovering hidden talents and turning them into globally successful authors. Ali founded Inkit in 2013 with the ambition to democratize publishing by putting the decision on what to write in the reader's hands. By analyzing reader behavior, Inkit claims it can predict future bestsellers. The mission, therefore, is simple, to help aspiring writers find an audience for their work and kickstart their career. If readers love it, Inkit publishes it. Inkit today has 7 million users and over 300,000 writers and is transforming the publishing industry by creating a more inclusive, equal, and fair world for both authors and readers alike. Inkit also recently raised a Series B of $59 million from several Tier 1 investors, including NEA, Kleiner Perkins, Speed Invest, and others. I'm looking forward to having this conversation with Ali and getting to understand the future of publishing the way he sees it. Welcome, Ali. Thanks, Anita. Thanks for having me. Ali, before we get into Inkit and everything that you're doing in the publishing world, I know that Inkit wasn't your first startup and you tried many startups before. I would love for you to talk to me a little bit about what motivates you and what makes you keep going on one startup after another. I was creating products and, and building things when I was 20 years old as a freshman. And the, the first product I built was an, an app where you could take pictures of the food you would get in the cafeteria in the university. So you could share it with the other students so that they know what is happening today. Is today's cafeteria food looking good or is it bad and what, how expensive is it, et cetera. And I was trying to sell that as a service to, to the university. And those were the times that I had actually never even heard the word startup. I've never heard about the word angel investor or anything like that. And I created that small product to sell it just for fun. I love building stuff. Later on, I created something similar to Fiverr.com in the US where service providers can offer their services on the platform and the buyers can purchase those things. So I built something similar. There were at that time something like 70 or 80 competitors in Germany. My website was uh, the largest from them all. I did a lot of press in order to get users on it because I had never heard about how online marketing works and things like that. After I had created that and after I had users, that's when I came across this website called TechCrunch in 2009, 2010 or so. That's when I started reading more about this and I figured that there is this thing people call it startup and there is this thing that it's called angel investing or how does investment world work? And that's how I got in touch with the uh, startup ecosystem. I, I remember from the beginning when I created this Fiverr web similar style website in Germany, which didn't grow very big, unfortunately. And then I stopped that in 2012, moved to Berlin. And then before 
there was Lyft or UberX. I was building something similar in Berlin, which unfortunately also failed due to regulations in Berlin. And that's the time when I figured that I'm becoming an entrepreneur. That's what people call me now. It was never an active intention. I love building stuff. I want to help other people. I want to build a the service that helps other people, that makes the world a better place. That's what is energizing me. People then call me an entrepreneur, but that's not my purpose. I want to make sure that the world is a better place when I leave this world, just because I was here with Inkit when I was like 25 when I had that idea. It was like a little bit more mature at that time compared to the you know, two previous businesses. That's when I thought deeper about it. And I thought, what do I want to do with my time on this planet? And how, how can I use that as effective as possible? I can understand your motivation for doing startups because you're not really thinking startup and investing. You're like, this is a problem. I think a solution could help people. But having done two and not going the full way with both of them, how did you convince yourself that with Inkit, it's going to be different? After the second startup failed, I enrolled myself in Berlin into the university so I could live as cheap as possible in the dorm room. And my dorm room was the office. I had an intern who was living nearby and he would come in every morning to my dorm room and we would work together in, in that dorm room. And we were working really, really hard to figure out how can we bypass the regulations and make the everybody can drive everybody model work. And we were working really hard on that for I believe like about a year before the launch, we went ahead to raise an angel round to kickstart everything. And we were getting the, the round together and people committed their money. They were very, very famous angel investors. That was around the time when I got this bad hunch and bad gut feeling that I felt like it's going to be really difficult in Berlin to bypass the regulations, which actually turned out to be the case. And Uber just started very recently in Berlin. And, and that's basically when I contacted these investors that I was talking with, and I told them like, hey guys, I have a bad gut feeling. I don't want to burn your money. I have been working on this for a year. I believe this is going to be really, really tough in Berlin. And that's when they thanked me and said like, hey, cool. Thanks for not burning our money. If you think it is not going to work actually. So I basically canceled the angel round just before it happened. And I felt like an absolute failure that I worked really hard on this and I could have maybe known this before. I just felt really, really bad. After also the first thing didn't grow really big, the fiber thing, I felt obviously super bad. And what followed was like multiple weeks of me not being able to get out of the bed. And I remember day drinking so often. I absolutely felt like a failure and definitely didn't want to do this ever again. There was actually one uh, book that I read throughout that time, which was The Alchemist from Paulo Coelho. It's definitely one of the books that I have read in my life that, that helped me get on the right path. What followed afterwards was just that I went to work as a freelance engineer for a bunch of other companies without having an intention to start a company again, because it, it felt so tough. And I, and I didn't believe that I'm the right person. With Inkit, things were very different. So it didn't even start as a startup in the beginning. The way it started was that I was working somewhere else as a freelance engineer. And I had this idea and it was 2013 when uh, medium.com launched. And it was the only beautiful place on the web where you could write and read. And it was like a big hype around it. And over the weekend, I thought, hey, I could potentially create something similar, like a beautiful website where 
writers who like to write fiction, they could upload their stories and share it with their friends and family. And that's what I did over the weekend. I polished it, made it look beautiful, spent a lot of time on the design. I wanted to build that for fun because at that point, so long that I had built something just on my own based on what I thought is the right way to do it. And I built that. It was super fun to code it, build it, design it. I started sharing it with a bunch of other writers on Facebook groups and they liked it and they started sharing it with their friends and family and they started telling their befriended writers about it. And it started to grow quite organically without me actually declaring and saying, like, oh, this is my next startup. I definitely did not intend it to be my next startup. It was just because I, I wanted to build something. I wanted to just do something fun uh, on that weekend. And it started to grow and grow and grow without me actually doing anything. About a year later, that was like mid-2014, that's when I realized, oh my God, this thing that I built has now suddenly a few hundred writers on it and a few thousand readers actually coming back to read these stories from these writers. It seems like what I have built here is working and it seems like people want it and it's kind of organically growing. So there must be something. That was the time when I was like, okay, what am I doing actually here? People are calling this business publishing business and it's about books and so on. And I had no clue about publishing. So I started Googling what is publishing? How does publishing work? And what are publishing houses? And what's the process and things like that. And I came across some surprising facts such as Harry Potter from J.K. Rowling was rejected by 13 publishers. They said, it's a horrible book, will never sell. And the 14th publisher very, very randomly came across this book and, and published it and then called even J.K. Rowling and said, hey, look, um, this is a kid's book and kid's books usually don't make that much money. So please keep your day job. Now the book has made over uh, $20 billion in, in franchise sales. And, and I found that very astonishing and surprising that all these publishers were so off. I figured that there were many other successful books, such as Twilight, that was rejected by 14 publishers, or Stephen King's first book being rejected by 30 publishers, etc. And um, I figured that this is a pattern I'm seeing over and over again, that these publishers are making gut-feeling decisions based on past performance of other books and making projections of how these books could potentially perform in the future. And it was fundamentally wrong to me. And I was asking myself, okay, if I was in their shoes, how would I have done these decisions differently? How would I have not turned down Harry Potter? And at that time, I had created this, this website where writers were uploading and readers were reading. So I said, hmm, what if I use the reading data on every single book that I have on my website for example, if people are clicking on the cover, people are reading the first chapter, continue re reading to the second chapter. Do they ever finish it? Are they bringing friends? How many friends are they bringing? Using such information to objectively rank all the stories so we know uh, what is the best story we have right now on the platform, what's the second best story, etc. And making those decisions very numerically and based on hundreds of readers instead of just gut feeling of one editor. And that was my idea back then when I said, okay, it seems like there is something going on on this website. People are loving it. I have this idea. I know how to monetize it. Let's turn it into a company. Now, six years later, we have discovered lots of talented authors all around the world. 
We have now discovered three authors who are making millions of, of dollars in, in sales. Uh, we have a ton of authors who have crossed hundreds of thousands in sales. One, one of the success cases that I'm really, really proud of is a young lady from, from India who lives in a state called Odisha, where only 64% of the women can read and write. She used an Android phone to download the Inkit app, and there she wrote an entire novel on the Inkit app on her phone and uploaded it to the platform and, and got feedback from our readers and continued writing it. That's like how we discovered her. And now she has crossed um, over three and a half million dollars in, in sales and is a globally successful author. These are the things that are now happening through Inkit because we are making these decisions so objectively and giving every author in the world an equal chance to, to succeed. That makes it possible for us to discover talent all around the world, wherever they are, without judging them based on their background, based on their number of followers or anything like that. It's all about if they have written an amazing story, we are able to discover it, to publish it and, and turn it into a blockbuster. That's phenomenal. I can't believe that the publishing world is still stuck to the subjective input from one person to determine the success or failure of a book. And I'm just wondering with all this AI and internet and things, there are lots of self-publishing platforms as well. So what makes your platform different from other self-publishing platforms? And why isn't the publishing world using these digital platforms that are available to get more data on the different books that are being submitted to them? So prior to Inkit, authors had two routes they could go. One was the traditional publishing route, and the second route would be the self-publishing. The traditional publishing route looks like you first of all need an agent because the publishers don't want to talk to you directly. They're too good for that. And in order to get an agent, you need to go online, find agents, directories, and contact a, a hundred of them and hope that one agent falls in love with the, the story that you have created or the world that you have created. Then you need to sign a deal with them. The agent then takes 15% cut from everything you will ever earn. And then you need to hope that the agent that you have has good connections at publishing houses to go and pitch your story. And if that works, which doesn't work most of the times because publishers like to publish authors who have previously been successful because otherwise it's too risky for them. So 90 plus percent of the, the books that publishers publish are not from debut authors. They want to make sure that either you have had previously successful books, that you have some followers, that you have some social media influence. They ask you, hey, you are an author. How many uh, social media followers you have? And then you say like, hey, actually, my job is to be an author. Isn't it your job to do the marketing? And they say, theoretically, yes, but actually, we want you to do the marketing. That's basically the, the traditional publishing route. Then there is the second route, which is self-publishing. It's called Kindle Direct Publishing. You can upload to Kindle directly yourself. It's quite simple. It takes a little bit of time to get used to the tools, but then you do that. Um, totally doable. The problem, though, is that there are, at this point, I believe, like six, seven million other books on Kindle. So if you go ahead and just publish your book on Kindle, it doesn't mean that you will actually get readers or that you will get any sales. If you want to be successful on Kindle, you need to be a very good marketer. That's where the problem starts. 
a lot of authors want to be authors. They want to be writers. They want to spend their time writing. And they're not the best performance marketers and know the ins and outs and data optimization on Facebook ads and how to run them efficiently, etc. There are some authors who are really good at that, and they're very successful on Kindle, but that's not the majority. Now, the third route with Inkit, that's where we come in. We're somewhere in between. We look at the author's stories, their performance, and then once we find a story that is performing well, we then sell it and also run advertising for them. So at this point that we are speaking, we're spending more than $100,000 every day on performance marketing our stories. So we actually advertise and we take an active role in making sure that these authors that we are publishing actually get readers. So basically the difference is we are more objective traditional publisher and we also actually have marketing budget behind our books. And if you look at all the authors we have published, the majority of like 99 plus percent of them are debut authors, which is very, very different to traditional publishing. I mean, that marketing piece seems so important, Ali, whether it's debut authors or even someone who's new, that marketing is so critical because as you said, the volume of new books that come out is tremendous. Why wouldn't Kindle help to do this marketing? Is that because it's not their business model? Is that a threat for you that they could tomorrow start to look at the data of who's reading what and start to do this? They potentially could, yeah. But the business model from Amazon primarily is to be a distribution channel. What they do really well is they're really good at getting millions and millions of products on their site. And then whenever a customer goes there and searches or something, being able to actually give that to the customer. So they're very, very customer-centric. In our case, our primary goal is not to be a distribution channel. Our primary goal is to be a publisher, to actually own the content exclusively so that we can work with the content, improve the content. So we have a very low selection of uh, stories, but then we have a lot of good stories. It seems to me like the readers are critical to making Inkit's platform successful. Tell me a little bit about the readers. Who are the readers that are coming to your site and reading What kind of people are there? Maybe you can share some trends in terms of what genres you're seeing emerging and important for the next few years. If you look at the the behavior of the readers, and we recently ran a, a survey and asked them, hey, overall, how many books do you read per year? So on Inke, but also like lending from the library or buying books, how many books do you read per year? And the average user responded that on average, they read over 200 books per year. So we have a user base of very, very avid readers who read a lot. That's almost a book every day. So they read a lot and they come to Inkit, they go to libraries and buy sometimes secondhand books to read. The reason is that they just consume so much that if they would be purchasing them somewhere else, it, it would cost a lot of money. And the, the average user base is something around 18 to 26 year old. So they don't have that much of a high purchase power. And therefore, Inkit is an amazing place for them where they can go um, and discover basically the next Harry Potter and completely read it for free. 
there is not even advertising on, on Inkit. So everything is completely free. It's a very awesome place. It's, it's the best place on the web if you want to read fiction. What genres seem to do well on your platform? At this point, what we see as a trend in general on the market, on Inkit, but also on Kindle and what I hear from other publishers right now, definitely the, the largest genre is what we call women's fiction. And that is basically everything from romance to thriller, sci-fi, fantasy, but where there is mostly female protagonists, where the story is about something that is like of female interest because women tend to read a lot more fiction than men, which is different with nonfiction. But in fiction, women at this point read a lot more. And therefore, everything that is including female topics is very, very popular. Let's go back to how you're building your company. You were at the stage where without you doing anything organically, you were having a few thousand readers and a few hundred writers on your platform. So then what did you do? What was the turning point where growth took off? That was actually a quite a long story. People look at us and they see us in the, in the startup scene. They see that we raised our Series B from a very well-known uh, Silicon Valley VC, our Series A from Kleiner Perkins, another very well-known Silicon Valley VC. And they think, oh, we just recently started over the last two years and things are taking off. But actually, um, it took uh, quite some long time. I started coding Inkit as a hobby project that was 2013, 2015 turned into a company. And then throughout the time, we had to basically go through three business models. And this is now the third business model, which we launched about two and a half years ago, which took off. But prior to that, we failed also with two business uh, models. The first one was that we wanted to discover amazing authors on Inkit and then go to other publishers and say, hey, look, um, these are the numbers and these are the statistics about this book. Do you want to publish this? And then what happened was that the publishers would, would look at the stats, look at me and they would say like, how do you want me to make a decision based on numbers? This is a book. We would have to read it. I would have to send it to an editor and she would have to make a gut feeling decision about the story and not with your numbers. And that was uh, the, the reactions we were, we were getting. So that didn't go very well. And then we said, okay, fine. The publishers don't get these numbers. They don't get it. Let's go ahead and find these great stories and then publish them on Amazon and sell them on Amazon. And that was the second business model. And what, we did that and we created a bunch of bestsellers on Amazon. But then what we learned throughout the time was that we weren't able to really scale the business. We were making something like 40, 50, 60,000 per month by selling these books. But one thing that Amazon doesn't do is like they don't want you to have access to your customers. They want to disconnect you as a seller with your customers because they want to be always the middleman. They want to be the distribution channel. And therefore, we were never able to actually upsell other books to our customers because we, we didn't know even who they are. We had no contact with them. We didn't have their email address. We couldn't send them push notifications. We weren't able to scale the business and keep them around. We had basically 100% churn every day because we would acquire a customer. They would go to Amazon. They would buy something. We wouldn't know who they are. And then we would never be able to contact them again. This 100% churn was like a really bad uh, situation to be in. So that was then in 2018 when we decided and said, okay, we need to turn this thing around. We need to build our own 
platform where we sell directly to, to the customers. And that turned out that in 2019, that then we created this app called Galatea, where we sell our best stories exclusively on Galatea and where customers can purchase chapters by chapters or do an unlimited reading subscription. And that's basically when we started Galatea in 2019, when we launched it. And then it went literally from zero to $40 million annual run rate over the last two and a half, three years or so. Yeah. Phenomenal. And I want to dig into the success part of it, but I want to go back to the first two models. You tried two seemingly good business models and both of them didn't work. I know when you're talking to me now, you're you're talking about it like it was just one iteration after another, a very linear, logical thing. But I'm sure there were some extreme stress and low points when you were going through those two, especially after the first one, when you did the second one to again, have a low point. And I think it's something that all entrepreneurs probably find themselves in and they have to constantly pivot and change. I was wondering if you could share some of the stories or, or, or what happened a little bit deeper when you were at these low points, how did you go to the next idea? How did you pivot? Yeah, in hindsight, it, it looks very logical. They, they were very tough times. I think the, the first pivot from selling to other publishers to selling directly on Amazon, that was more smooth because we were able to quickly just upload a book on Amazon. We were like, oh, this seems to be working. Let's figure it out. But after that, what followed was that we were stagnating with our revenues for almost a year or more than a year. And we weren't able to increase it at all. So we were trying every single thing that we would ever hear about some marketers online, like how they were publishing books on Amazon, etc. And we, we basically became one of the, the best publishers on Amazon, but we learned that this is not enough. It's not enough to build like actual big business, something that is, that is meaningful. And that was a time when confidence in Inkit from all sides was very low. Our employees were, were questioning, is this company ever going to go anywhere? Seems like this is not working out from investors, shareholders. So it was a very, very stressful time. One thing about where I was very lucky was in early 2018, I joined an accelerator program. So even though we were already a little bit further and had employees, etc., I joined an accelerator program in New York called the German Accelerator. The cool thing there was I had to fill out a bunch of forms. So they would ask every startup founder to fill out these forms to do a SWOT analysis, who are your customers, et cetera. And I was like, I will do it next week. I have my business to work on. I don't want to do this on a weekend or so. I ended up actually filling it out because it was like only one day left until the deadline. And I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to sit down and fill out this form. And the questions they asked were very, very good. They were asking you about like, who are your customers? How do you stay in touch with them? How do you retain them, et cetera? And then I would write down, oh, we are on Amazon. We don't know who our customers are. We cannot retain them. They churn. We don't have no touch points with them, et cetera. And that's when I realized, oh, that's the problem. I'm very thankful that I had to fill out those forms that when I learned that this is the problem, this is what we need to fix. And that created some hope in me that at least logically, I know how to solve this. We need to have a connection with our customers. That didn't change the mood in the company and with the shareholders because they were like, oh, this company is, is not going anywhere. It was quite tough to keep the team motivated and a lot of people quit. There were some tough conversations. People had lost their faith. A lot of people from you know, all around us. 
it was quite a tough 2018, I would say. I'm glad that things turned in this direction and that when we said, hey, we want to build our own distribution channel, people were asking, how should this be possible? Why would people come to your app instead of going to Kindle? Why do you want to create another Kindle? That makes no sense, Ali. I'm glad that it worked out. So it was definitely a lot of hard work, persistence, but... I definitely have to say we were also lucky. So some of the things that worked out, I, I think we were quite lucky that this worked out with the third business model. It could have happened with the fifth business model, right? But I also know that growth is like an S-curve. It's never linear or exponential. I'm sure also in the future, things like this will happen and we will hit a plateau and then we will have to figure out how to overcome the next plateau and, and then take it from there. We have a quite a big vision and we want to achieve um, something really meaningful. So basically, the moral of the story is that there will always be times as an entrepreneur where you'll plateau or things don't seem to go right. And the things that you did is, one, you never gave up. Two, you kind of are recommending that, well, in your case, it was the accelerator program, but doing some sort of logical root analysis to figure out what was the blocker and just go logically to try and unblock the problem. Absolutely. And maybe one, one more thing to tell you about this never, ever giving up. This is something that resonates with me a lot. And this is one of our core values of the company, never, ever give up. After I had failed to do those two businesses, when I started out, after you know, a few years, I realized with both businesses how I could have actually made them succeed in hindsight. With the Fiverr, uh, a similar business, which was called Funfi. With Funfi, I, I figured that there were some sub-genres uh, or sub-categories of, of services that were, were provided. They were more around SEO and content writing, and they weren't super popular. I should have pivoted the company, focused on what really works, and made that really big. And it, that would have 100% worked. And I realized it way too late after I had shut down the, the site. With everybody can drive everybody, kind of lift a thing that I wanted to create. I, I somehow didn't think big enough. I was lost in thinking like, I need to make this work in Berlin. I need to make this work in Germany. But I could have made it work in Poland. I could have made it work in Spain. The regulations there were much easier to handle. Like I could have done that and I didn't, right? I realized it way too late after I had told the investors that I'm basically not going to do the, the angel round. When I actually decided to turn Inkit into a company from this hobby project, when I started out, I said, okay, I'm actually going to make a promise to myself. And this promise is I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to give up. This means that either Inkit is going to be successful first or I will die first. I really meant it to myself. I wrote it down and I was reminding myself about it every time these challenges would happen because I knew that when that challenge itself happens, you might do an analysis and you might say like, oh, there is no way out. This is what exactly happened with my two first startups. But then two years later, I was like, oh, Ali, there is no way in Germany. You could have done it in Spain. Why were you so much in that tunnel view? I want to ask one more question before we end this inspiring podcast. And that is to make something successful. It's not just about convincing yourself that you can do it. And like you said, persisting and never giving up. Because in most cases, you also need to convince the people around you that are working on this problem with you to go when things are not looking good and to not give up. So maybe because of your experiences, you already have this mentality. Mm. How do you bring others along at these inflection points 
when we figured that publishing on Amazon doesn't work out, I had this idea that we need to own our own customers and customer data and have the, the direct contact. And we wanted to create Galatea. There was a lot of doubt from all perspectives, from employees, from investors, from shareholders, everybody. I think they were very valid. They were asking, why would somebody come to Galatea if they can go to Kindle? We learned that throughout time, our stories are so good and we have them exclusively on Galatea. You cannot find them anywhere else. That's the reason people come. But we couldn't express ourselves that well. At that time, we didn't know how to do that and we, how important this is going to be. I kept uh, repeating over and over again, try to inspire the team, make sure that you know, people believe that there is going to be a solution in the future and that this will work out. And at that time, I told them like about my two startups and how both failed. And that later on, I figured out that there was a solution and I just didn't have it at that time. So I tried to give all those inspirational speeches and try to keep the team motivated. In the end, there were two junior marketing managers that we had on the team at that time, Lauren and Emma, who actually in the end came up with the idea of Galatea. They were working at Inkey at the time. And they co-founded Galatea, basically. They're two of the most important people at Inkit now. They were inspired by the situation we were in. We're like, okay, we have failed two business models. We need to figure out a third one, but we will succeed. And they were very motivated by it. And they did an amazing job. And without them, we would not be here today. At the same time, also some other employees left the company and said, okay, this company has failed with two business models and I'm out now. There is no... There is no future here. I tried my best to try to motivate people, make sure that people believe that there is a good future and that the current situation might be tough. We might be struggling, but the future actually looks good. Maybe actually these hard times help a company to self-select and bring the right people with the right mentality on board. Because like you said, at that time, the people that stuck around were the people that have also ended up turning the company around. So maybe in some ways, these inflection points in a company um, help to create the right environment and the right set of people to take it to the next level. 100% fully agree with that. Earlier, we talked about Paolo Coelho's The Alchemist, and there is this scene when the protagonist, he has sold everything that he had in order to go and pursue his, his dream. And I believe he's somewhere in Morocco. He has all his, his money and everything that he possesses there. And he's sitting at the market and then somebody steals everything that he has. He is in Morocco. He has no money to get back home and he has no money to actually pursue his dream and go to, to Egypt. So he's sitting there and he's totally devastated and he doesn't know how to move on. And there is this one quote that, that resonated with me a lot. He basically thinks about himself and he, he says, okay, now I have the ability to decide whether I want to see myself as this poor guy who's sitting here, who was just robbed and is devastated and live that person's uh, life or see myself as an adventurer who is in this situation and he is entering a new adventure on his road to find his dream. So there's two mindsets. Either you can take the victim mindset when these things happen, or you actually say, awesome, this is even an adventure. This has got tougher and tougher. Let me go figure it out. And once I figure this out, um, because I'm so sure that the future is going to be bright, I will be so happy that I figured this puzzle. You have segued so beautifully into my rapid round because I usually ask these questions at the end to every guest that I have. Okay. And two out of the four questions are your favorite book 
and your favorite quote. And you just answered those. And, and just so you know, listeners, Ali and I had not planned this at all. So this was totally impromptu. Thanks to you, Ali. I have two other questions left. One is, it is the European startup show. So I would love to hear, what's your favorite European city? My favorite city in, in Europe, I definitely think it's Berlin. I really love Berlin. It's the melting pot of so many different uh, cultures from so many backgrounds. There is so much good food everywhere. The Berlin summer is beautiful. And you can go out and in every corner, people are hanging out, playing guitar. And my last question is, do you have a productivity tool or hack or tip? Something that keeps you productive? Well, one tool that I use on a daily basis this is this to-do app called uh, Workflowy, which is a bullet points to-do list. So you can organize it however you want. I, I use that a lot to take care of all my to-dos. And then in there, I have like integrated like an Eisenhower matrix where everything that comes in, I, I basically put it in my inbox initially, right? Like if some, I have an idea or something, I, uh, something I want to do, I added it in my inbox and then I categorize it based on the importance and urgency on this matrix uh, thing. It's called the Eisenhower matrix. There's like this four quadrants of like basically important and urgent, or is it non-important and urgent or uh, not important and urgent or things that are not important and not urgent? Well, we've come to the end of the podcast, Ali, and thank you so much for an absolutely wonderful conversation today. I really enjoyed it. I look forward to reading books on Galatea. I did download it and I started reading one of them and I found the experience quite easy. The kind of effects that come to some of the chapters. Yeah, the sound effects. I feel like it's a new experience in reading that's kind of in between pure audio or video and pure reading. And I quite liked it. Glad to hear it. Thank you so much, Anita. It was, uh, it was great an hour uh, to spend together. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building. 